Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, we have a buffet of birds. Not literally, let's not eat the birds, but we are talking about all sorts of birds. And this is a really exciting episode because I am not alone. I am being joined by travel and wildlife writer Mike Unwin. His book, Around the World in 80 Birds, documents birds that Mike has encountered all over the world the stories of these birds, and it gives you a taste of the wonderful diversity of our feathery dino friends. So we are going to talk about some of these birds, and we're going to talk to Mike about his adventures. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Kate. Good to be here. I am so excited. Your book is really wonderful. It's beautifully illustrated, uh, and the descriptions of these birds are... It's really fun because it gives you this rundown of this whole essence of the bird, you know, not just the biological description of what it is, but what it's like and its impact on human culture and the interactions between birds and humans for better or for worse. And as people already listening to this show probably know, I love birds. I have a particular fondness for them because they're so 
They're adorable and their behaviors are identifiable, but they're also little aliens. They are so different from, from us, from other mammals, but they have so much personality. Just for the record, and you don't have to convince me to love birds, but for you, why birds? Why are you interested in birds? Okay, well, it's, it's good to know I'm preaching to the converted here. Uh, I think I should, I should start with a confession, which is uh, you've, you've said these are 80 birds that I've followed around the world. In fact, I, I totted up from the book the other day. I've not seen 80 of them. I've seen 53. Um, My God, I, what a not, confession. Well, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's, I'm a charlatan. I, well, I'd like to have seen, uh, maybe I could have started by choosing 80 birds I'd seen and called it you know, around around Mike Unwin's world and 80 birds. I'm not sure the publishers <laughs> would have gone for that. These are 80 um, birds I've but seen. Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, 80 of the same one. No, there's that. And that also another confession while I'm, while I'm laying my, my soul bare. Um, I'm, I'm not a, a biologist. I'm not a zoologist at all. So I think I'm an example of one of the many people who've, who've come to birds and natural history from a non-science background, which says in itself, partly answers your question, why birds? They, they reach out. Um, they have a broader appeal, and that's why they're you know, cemented in so many people's cultures and iconography and literature and, and you name it. And I, I mean, why? I'm, I, I think they're, they're, they're everywhere. Birds are everywhere. They're so conspicuous. Uh, they're so noisy. There are no other parts <laughs> of the natural world that makes so much sound and such a variety of it. Um, and you can see them. You don't have to be in some remote wilderness. You don't have to be in a tropical rainforest or on the top of the Andes or something. You you see birds in your back garden. You see them when you commute to work. You, you you don't even have to have a garden. You see them from your window. There are birds, and there are different birds in every place, you know, in your, your school when you're growing up, in your, your your local park and your trip to the seaside. They're everywhere, and um, and they force themselves on your attention, you know, um, by their sound and their fluttering about. And for me, I, I mean, I grew up in, in suburban UK, and I, I was a natural history obsessive. And I read all the books about, you know, I wanted to be tracking lions through the Serengeti and diving with great white sharks and doing all these exciting things. And you don't get any of that in suburbia where I lived, but you do get birds. Yeah. And you look out your window and there are blue tits and there are great tits and there are sparrows and chaffinches and robins and, and what, whatever. So they're there. They're, they're there. They satisfy that, love, that, that need to see the natural world happening. Um, and the more you look, the more you see, and the more you see, the more you want to know, and the more different ones you want to see. So you have this kind of, this fantastic invitation to to explore and discover more. And I think, I, I mean, that's a, you know, a a personal thing. For a universal thing, people, I think the fact they fly is, is a pretty big deal. I think if, when, when you, when I was going, researching this book and looking at the number of different cultures through history to which one bird or other has been pivotal, I was... Uh, I was I was just struck by that the the sort of the wonder that people have in flight because I don't know when 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 you hear some some celebrity being interviewed and you know what would your superpower be it's it's always I want to fly mm -hmm. and it, whether it's it's freedom or escape or some kind of magical transcendence of the you know the dull terrestrial world we're stuck in so I think you know birds symbolise that for us yeah and they look good. <laughs> So it's a long answer to a simple question, but you know, you could we could talk all day about why birds. But yeah, 
And they're a starting point, you know, started with birds for me, then it went in all sorts of other directions too. So. You know, I have a very similar story because when I was a kid, I like a li- very little kid before I can even remember, but my mom remembers, I was obsessed with birds and I'd be barely, mm-hmm. barely two years old running around outside chasing birds around. And when my mom asked me what I was doing, I would say something like, I want to catch a bird. And she'd ask me why. And I said, well, I think we could be friends. <laughs> so I think we like to, um, I don't know, we, we, we transfer our own values to them as well. That, that's why they, they loom so large in culture. We, they, they become emblematic of all these things that they didn't actually ask for. So whether it's <laughs> eagles, which are kind of mighty and powerful and military, or whether it's, I don't know, owls, which are wise or sinister, or it's thieving magpies or whatever it might be, we, we, we kind of, um, yeah, we saddle them with our, with our own values because they're there. They're these wonderful kind of exciting palettes on which we can paint our own ideas. Yeah. I, I wonder sometimes because, you know, as a bird watcher, bird documenter, it seems like this kind of one-sided thing where you are there kind of spying on these birds, mm. uh, peering into their world. As the bird goes about. Yeah. But have you had any experiences with birds where you felt like the bird was curious about you? Or is that kind of antithetical to the the bird observer where you want to be unseen? But does that line ever get crossed where the bird is actually watching you and interested in what you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'd like to think I had some kind of empirical scientific objectivity, but I don't. I'm as I'm as prey to those <laughs> anthropomorphic ideas and, and speculations as anyone else. And I mean, there are times I think, oh, I, I don't know. I think, for instance, being um, I, I've been at, at sea on long voyages in the Southern Ocean. I've been watching albatrosses, for example, and you see this bird. It's a speck in the wake of the ship. I mean, I'm the only person on deck, and the weather's not great. And I see this bird low above the waves, and somehow it's miraculously gaining on us, catching up in the wake of the ship until it pulls alongside. And I've had these moments where I've got this a wandering albatross, right, which is a massive, but it's three meters across the wings. It's this extraordinary bird and it's hanging there sort of magically just a, a, you know, a few meters away from me at eye level off the side of the ship. And I, and I look at it and, and it just kind of looks sideways at me and we make eye contact. And here's this thing, we're in the middle of nowhere. And <laughs> I'd like to say there's some, if it's not a moment of communication, there's curiosity. It's, you know, what what are you and what are you doing there? And, and, there's, and, and here's this creature. I mean, an albatross can live for 70 years, right? Yeah. They don't mature uh, to breed until the wandering albatrosses till they're 12, 13, 14. They, they are extraordinary creatures with complex lives that we, a lot of which we can only guess at. And I think we'd be foolish to underestimate uh, what's going on. But at the same time, I mean, of course, as a bird watcher, you're... Mo- Things are running away from you, most of all, flying away from you. you, know, you <laughs> right. We're this great looming potential predator that kind of blunders around in their world and, and off they go. They tolerate you as long as they can. Yeah. Unless there's something in it for them. You know, that's what the scientists would tell you, of course. So, yes. um, and, I, and again, we, we love to transfer these sort of values. Like in, in the UK, our, the robin, uh, with the European robin, yes. which I should hasten to add, is very different from your American robin. It is. Um, which more... is not a robin at all. It's a thrush. It's... <laughs> so let's. <laughs> yes. No, I know. The, the European robin is like, the for me, the difference is the European robin sphere, American robin bird shape. <laughs> Your European robin yeah. is okay. like okay. a little poof ball with legs. 
Yeah, it does, definitely. It puffs itself up. Um, and it's a very, very popular bird in the UK, and especially with gardeners, because it, it's very confiding and, and people will be digging in their back garden, turning over the soil, and a robin will turn up. And it will sit close to them or it will perch on the fork handle, as, as we've illustrated in the book. Mm-hmm. And people develop a relationship with it. And then people start talking about my robin. Oh, yeah, the, my robin was out here. So and he popped in to say hello. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we had a little chat. And uh, I gave him some worms. And I'm, I'm often it may not be him. It's probably a her. Um, and it may, may not even be the same robin. But people love to develop this idea that they've somehow forged this, this bond with the bird. And the truth is perhaps a little less less kind of appealing, which is that robins evolved they 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 feed on small insects they yeah. feed in the the understory of, of forests and woodland and they probably evolved it's thought in tandem with wild boars and wild boars they root through the leaf litter they dig up grubs they turn over the soil and the robin will hang around and drop down and pick up a, a worm or a, or a, a beetle larva or an insect and, and essentially gardeners are just being kind of upright wild boars in, in suburbia, <laughs> you know, and, and robins know there's no, there's no harm for them. They, you know, why not take what they can? We're just tall, um, upright, wild boars. I, I mean, you know. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I wish, you know. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I feel a bit more self-respect, maybe. <laughs> but I, I, I forgot. There's one story that occurred to me actually when you say this um, about interacting with birds. I mean, whether they're curious about me or not, I don't know. But there's a bird in my book called the uh, the Greater Honey Guide. Yes. Which you may know about. It, it's an African bird, and it's it's found all over Sub-Saharan Africa. But I've I've actually, in my book, each bird uh, is connected to a particular country. And in this case, I made it Zambia because it was in Zambia. I had an amazing experience. I was I was out on foot in a in a in a national park, Kafui National Park. It's a huge wilderness. And I was walking with an armed guide and we were in big game country and there were elephants around and we were following this trail through the bush. And I heard a honey guide calling and I know the honey guide. And it's an unobtrusive brown little bird. Nothing very spectacular to look at. And it's got a fairly recognisable call, but it was doing this this frantic call. It was like it was like a frenzied honey guide. It was a twittering, twittering. Of, and my guide said, "Yeah, it wants it wants um, it wants us, it wants to lead us to honey." And I know about it. I've read about it, but I was a little sceptical that mm-hmm. this bird supposedly if it, it feeds on beeswax and 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 grubs, larvae yes. of bees, and supposedly it co-ops the assistance of a larger mammal, i.e., humans, but supposedly also honey badgers to to get at the bees nest to plunder it to pull it out you know to take what they want and then leave something for the honey guide and you read about this as a kid and um but it also felt a little apocryphal mm-hmm. so we were walking along and here the honey guide was flying ahead tree to tree and the path forked and we had to head right so we went off right leaving the honey guides below us and it came back it came along the path and now it was in a it, it had wound itself up into a complete paroxysm <laughs> of, of twitching. Was, Why aren't you listening to me? Cross. I know exactly. Come on, for God, honestly. And it was ahead. It was flitted ahead of us. And I said, "Look, can we, you know, just indulge me? Can we just see what happens here? Can we?" So we retraced our steps to where the paths forked, and the honey guide then flew ahead down the lower path. We followed it, and it, what it does is it flies from tree to tree, stops, calls, flies onto the next tree. We catch up, moves on. It leads you. Yes. I love that. I love the scientific name, by the way, which is indicator, indicator. It tells you what you need to know. Sometimes it's just on the nose. Exactly. Exactly. There you go. Uh, um, and finally, we get to a, a baobab, huge, great African tree. And it flies up into the, the upper branches and it just falls silent. And in the silence, I could just hear this hum. Mm-hmm. And it was the buzzing of bees. 
And then with binoculars, halfway up the trunk, there's that what appears to be smoke coming out and there was a bee's nest in a hole in the trunk of this bear And the, the honey guide had just, it had just flown up and it perched on a branch and it just was completely silent. And it was like, okay, come on guys. Yeah, get to work. Stuff now. Yeah. I'm ready, I'm ready, Chuck get to up. work. Yeah. <laughs> and this was, about, this was about four or five meters up the tree trunk. I, we were not going to climb yeah. <laughs> and stick our face in a, in a bee's nest. And the whole thing was amazing. And uh, I, I was, it, it was extraordinary. And, and, and we left it. We left the honey guide. There's that old bird saying, you can lead a human to a bunch of bees, uh, but you can't make the human get the bees down, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, <laughs> it's in all their bird folklore anthologies. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and, and it, it's quite interesting because in African folklore, actually, that. I mean, people have got people. This is something that probably evolved with hunter gatherer peoples, you know, centuries ago, millennia. Yeah. But to this day, uh, subsistence farmers in Central Africa still use honey guides yeah. in this way to, to, to collect honey. And the story goes that you must always, if, once you've hauled the, because they use smoke, they smoke out the bees to, to dull them, they haul out the bees' nest, and you must always leave some wax, some of the honeycomb for the honey guide. Yeah. Because if you don't, if you don't do that, next time it's going to take you to a, a black mamba or a leopard <laughs> or something. <laughs> now, I don't know if they would uh, anyway. be so uh, so petty, but, you know, it is interesting because in these uh, symbiotic relationships, uh, there mm. are there are cases where they will learn to distrust individuals if you don't basically yes. pay, play by their rules. This is the yeah. case in many, like... You know, we know that with uh, Corvids, yes, um, Corvids, very yeah. good memory. They will yeah. teach the younger generations not to trust you, the human, if you have yeah. wronged them, which uh, many university researching uh, stu students, interns have learned <laughs> the hard way uh, being part yeah. of these studies. And it it is it is fascinating to me because I think it is true. Birds, we can't really anthropomorphize them in the sense that, you know, this bird is not necessarily thinking, great, you know, I'm helping this human get honey. This bird is thinking, when this happened, when I do this do this uh, series of events, I get beeswax and I get larvae. And, you know, yeah. it, but I think that we also can't shy away too much from attributing emotion to them because the bird being frustrated, I could believe that bird is frustrated that you're not. Yeah following it and not paying attention to it. I think it was legitimately yeah. peeved that you were not picking up what it was putting down, which I think is, there's something so charming about that, that this thing, this like living dinosaur mm. that's turned small and flits around and has is cute and has feathers still has mm. these, like such a personality. Yeah, I think so. And I think we underestimate that with our peril. Yes. And, I, and as for emotion, I mean, you get it into tricky philosophical areas here, don't you? Because all this research done on corvids and ravens and this discussion, magpies discovering capacity for things that were once held to be exclusively human and grieving and, and envy and all sorts of things like that. And, um, and But I think you also have to flip it around and say, well, you know, we, we, we forever we've separated ourselves from the rest of the animal world by claiming that we have this sophisticated suite of emotions that make us... But I mean, you know, we, we have to break them down in us. What are they for? Half of them are about yeah. getting one up on somebody else or yeah. obtaining, a, you know, a reward or manipulate, you know, manipulating social circumstances to our own ends, just as social birds do. Yeah, so exactly. Different expressions of the same instincts. We just do it with clothes on, I think. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I, I think that is exactly on. You know, when you look at emotions, it's a reward system. And, you know, birds and other animals also need a reward system. So we are not yeah. so special. Well, I'll uh, leave you guys with you're not so special over the ad break. But when we return, we're going to talk more about these wonderful birds described in this book and just give you a little little taste of these spectacular birds you can find all over the world. So we'll be right back. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And we are back, and I wanted to talk about some of the birds from your book that I really loved reading about and that I, I think it, it's just, there's such a wide diversity of birds. It is amazing. And I think, you know, the evolution towards flight seems to just do something that, you know, it, it forces these animals to evolve into such interesting niches. And it get, I mean, it doesn't force them. It, it's more, it gives them so many more opportunities that they can evolve into a different niche. And even flightless birds, we see this where, you know, with penguins, yes, they're flightless. Uh, they lost their ability to flight, but now they have this incredibly complex system of, of swimming and this awkward life on land, but far more graceful life under the water. 
uh, for a bird, which is incredible. And so I, I think that that flight in birds and this initial evolution towards flight just opened up so many different paths for them. No wonder they have taken such a diverse path. And one really interesting bird I wanted to talk about from your book is the palm nut vulture, because uh, this, I love vultures. I think they, they get a bad rap because they, you know, they eat carcasses, they're spooky maybe, but they're, they're wonderful, wonderful animals. They provide a very important service. And these ones are interesting because these are kind of like the, the pandas of the bird world because they, the palm nut vulture, it has descended from a line of carnivores, scavengers who feed on carcasses, but this one is different. Uh, what is going on with this guy? Yeah, great. It's, it's uh, what's the phrase, the, the exception that proves the rule, yes. which never really, never really <laughs> I don't mean, understand means anything to me. But hey, no, I don't. It's an African vulture. It's the smallest of the old world vultures. It's um, smallish, black and white vulture found around the coast and it feeds mostly on the nuts the 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 palm nuts of raffia palms and oil palms so it is a a vegetarian carnivore if you know <laughs> um and so i don't know whether it's um why the next question is why of course yes. and i think it has to be because it has seen documentaries about the huge damage <laughs> that meat eating is doing to our planet and it's decided right. to, to take the responsible path and, you know, do its bit for planet Earth. And um, it's either that or it's the fact that long before we started pumping out fossil fuels it, uh, and cutting down rainforests, it, as you say, it, it's about diversification. It's about finding a niche. I mean, I mean, the world of birds of prey, uh, there's a lot of competition, especially in Africa. Yes. Um, there's a lot of different raptors. Um, vying for the the best parts of the carcass or or of the living animals along with other terrestrial predators small mammals small carnivores snakes whatever and wherever there's wherever the nature offers a niche a vacancy to be filled if you like um you know the laws of adaptation of, of natural selection will find something to fill it yes um, and in this case the palm nut vulture has has um has has risen to the challenge um, and it's able to obtain most of the nutrition it needs and has, has developed a technique um, for which it has no, com no competition from other birds and feeds mostly on, on oil palms, uh, the, the fruit of them, which are pretty hard to break into. Um, but it's not, uh, has to be said, it's not uh, an entirely strict vegetarian. It right. does. It's got cheat days. You know, <laughs> It does, yeah. It's like those, um, you, you know, you hear about a bacon sandwich being the demise of a vegetarian occasionally, <laughs> and uh, all principles crumble. Would, no, they will take. Uh, what would be sorry. the What would be the bacon sandwich for the palm nut vulture? Uh, well, the bacon sandwich um, would be crabs. I crabs see. on the beach. I uh, see. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe crabs with ketchup, maybe. <laughs> Um, the crabs and, and dead fish scavenging that people have put out have as an experiment put out uh, dead fish on the beach uh, in Palma vulture territory and they've had no problem coming down and and, uh, and, and filling their, their face or their bill yes. with dead fish um, <laughs> but they're not really adapted they don't have the predatory prowess of other birds of prey they also can't compete with the larger vultures at a carcass yeah I've actually seen them um, 
I've seen them around a carcass where larger vultures are gorging themselves and they wait till the, the big ones have flown off and I see if see, there are yeah. scraps left behind. Um, but, uh, and they've, they've adapted as well. They, they're, they're more solitary uh, than most old world vultures. And you can see them around human habitation a lot. If you go to the west coast of, of Africa, places like um, Senegal and Gambia and areas like that, they're often around fishing villages and on the beach. Um, but yeah, they are that, um, the oxymoron of nature, a vegetarian carnivore. Yes. I mean, we've had that happen uh, in, in multiple species of carnivores, and it's sometimes mm. very interesting. Like for um, dogs, uh, of course, evolved from an extinct wolf ancestor, uh, a yeah. common ancestor between the dogs and the mm. current gray wolf. Mm. And dogs originally were strict carnivores, but... Because yes. they had this relationship with humans, they actually started to uh, evolve so that they could digest things like grains and wheat. And yes. so, like now, of course, you cannot feed a dog only bread. That will not be healthy for the dog. But it can actually digest mm. more a, a more a greater variety of things than a wolf can digest because yeah. it had this relationship with humans. And it's fascinating that evolution can work on that scale. We think yeah. of it as something over, you know, millions of years, not something over sort of our yeah. short human kind of existence here, but it, it does. And, you know, of course I brought up pandas earlier because pandas were, uh, are a vegetarian carnivore. They are extremely inefficient. <laughs> they are not, uh, they, they, they are not, we're not originally uh, evolved to be able to digest that much fiber and that much vegetation. And so they compensate that by just eating a huge amount of it and sleeping a lot. <laughs> and it works for them. Mm -hmm. Pandas are bears, aren't they? And yes. a, a lot of bears eat primarily vegetable matter. Yes. A lot of, you know, and they're here, they are, they've, they've evolved, they've got the, they, they've, they come from a, carnivore body plan they've evolved from the same roots as cats and dogs and hyenas and otters and genets and all those things but i think a lot of like a, in autumn their sustenance comes largely from berries and roots and and yet they've you know they've got the they've got the the dentition of a, of a carnivore they've yes. got the forward-facing eyes of a hunter they've um civets as well they eat a lot of fruit matter a lot of berries it kind of shows you that as environments change you either need to kind of keep with it like get with the times and yeah. be able to diversify yeah, yeah, yeah. or you fail so there are probably carnivores i mean we know there are plenty of carnivores that went extinct because they couldn't compete and they uh oh. could not get enough prey it's actually i mean people think of carnivores as sort of leading this easy fearless life like the lions are the the kings mm. and queens of the mm. savannah because they they don't have no, a predator from it. they are mm. they live life on the edge because if they miss a mm. few meals they're goners. So speaking of predators, now I do want to talk about an actual uh, predator. It is a bird who's not a vulture. It is a falcon, but it does have a naked face like a vulture. It's the northern crested caracara. So why does it have that naked face? It's an adaptation like the vultures, I, I believe, which is to stop its face being soiled, uh, its, its feathers from being soiled with blood and gore and other unpleasant matter when it sticks its uh, its head inside a carcass and pulls out what it can. Um, so it's an adaptation that quite a few um, scavenging birds uh, have, have developed. 
Yeah, and you see that with uh, with um, condors or vultures, the just very yeah. naked bare faces makes them look maybe not so pretty, but it keeps them much more hygienic than they would be if they were getting this mass of blood yeah. and guts matted in their feathers. So they're actually, they want to be clean. <laughs> they're pretty to each other as well. Yes, of that. course, yeah. I think I think they're beautiful. <laughs> I love them. I'm I'm a I'm a vulture fan too. And uh, <laughs> but then there's an interesting thing about the, about adaptation, isn't there? Because the new world vultures are not related to the old world vultures at all. So the new world vultures are in fact not birds of prey. Wow. So the condors and the turkey vulture and yeah. so on, they actually come. They're much. They come from an order of birds and more closely related to the storks, and so they're not part of the. Um, Acipitriforms, the 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 um, the old world birds of prey. So the old world vultures are grouped taxonomically with the eagles and hawks and buzzards and kites and harriers and so on. The new world ones, completely separate, more closely related to storks. That's amazing. But yeah, they they have they've they have converged. It's convergent evolution. They've converged on the same lifestyle. They've fulfilled the same niche in the new world as the vultures have in the old world. So they've developed the same attributes: the naked face, the guard against soil plumage. The fantastic soaring wings in order to eyes on thermals and scan for prey over a great distance. The, the same social behavior gathering a carcass. So um, things can come from different bases and converge and, and reach a very similar form. And um, I think it's only really once we've got into molecular taxonomy and, yes. and DNA and so on that we realize that these things were actually uh, not as closely related as we thought. And that's the same with falcons. In fact, now... Falcons have been split from the birds of prey. Wow, yeah, so the really. The falconiforms, yeah, they're, so they're more closely related to parrots. That's amazing. So this is one that, yeah, I know it's traditionalists like me. We grew up with the bird book and you, you flip through the bird book and, okay, okay, here are the birds of prey, the big ones with the, sh the sharp bills and the right. wicked talons, and, and it goes vultures, eagles, hawks, whatever, and then you've got the falcons at the end. Shouldn't be there. Falcons should be off nearer the parrots. That's incredible, yeah. Yeah, they've converged also. To use that convergent evolution term, they've they've developed the same attributes, the same techniques, the same ability to say capture birds in flight and to tear them up. <laughs> um, so, so where does that leave us with the, the caracara? It's uh, the caracara is 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 one of the falconiforms, so it's related to the to the falcons, but it doesn't chase birds around in flight. Um, it is it, well, we we've just been talking about the. Uh, palm nut vulture, which is highly specialised. It's a serious specialist. It's got a very narrow little niche that it has adapted to exploit. The 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 caracara is a um, generalist. It's the opposite. It's it's a kind of the the the, the crow of of the of the birds of prey world. Um, you know, it it can it can chase things and kill them, but it can also um, steal food from other birds. It can also avail itself of a bit of roadkill if it drops down to a highway. Um, it can, it, unlike other uh, falcons, it doesn't hunt alone. It, it moves around in groups. Um, sometimes, you know, you can uh, cooperate with each other in finding food and you can overwhelm a larger prey item if there are several of you. It hops around on the ground, behaving more like a big chicken than <laughs> a sort of, you know, noble, dashing, elegant peregrine falcon. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's kind of, it's got a solution to every feeding opportunity. And it's incredibly successful as a result. So you get the, I have in my book, the, the um, northern crested caracara. In fact, it's, it's found all the way from Mexico. I, I, 
it's the bird for Mexico in my book. It's found all the way down to the, the south of Patagonia, over the whole way through. It's in fact from about probably Texas in the north down to, to Argentina in the south. Um, and it's pretty ubiquitous and it does very, very well. And it, uh, it's not a necessarily a solitary bird, right? It can work in groups in its yeah. hunting? Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting to yes, me because yeah. falcons, I mean, it, it makes some more sense in terms of like it being more closely related to parrots, which are highly, highly social. But that it, it's, yeah. it's a ra- relatively, I mean, corvids are also very social, but it's it seems yeah. like somewhat unusual for a bird of prey to work in a group because we often think of it as like an owl, you know, this solitary hunter yeah. or an eagle yeah. or a hawk, which maybe they may kind of form a pair, but they don't usually f- form like a, a f- group that actually hunts together socially. Yeah, yeah that's right. But I th- they're not always in groups. I think they'll, they'll adapt as the occasion demands. So I think they can play the solitary loner and hang out and kind of be cool, or they can join the gaggle <laughs> and, and when there's a large carcass and, and share the spoils, you know, when it, when it makes sense to do so. And, um, and it's, it's in these sociable birds that you get the most interesting communication as well, because they have to sort out the politics, you know, the hierarchies and the dominance of certain individuals and so on. Um, that is really interesting. Oh, and I, I also wanted uh, you to talk about a, a little bit about the Caracara's notion of uh, romance, because I thought that was very interesting. The Caracara's notion of romance. Yeah, it would probably be a, a candlelit dinner for two over a roadkill armadillo. <laughs> Romance. <laughs> I, I, yeah, uh, they they have um, a very loud call and they duet. So a pair will get together, um, and they form bonds that last throughout the breeding season for for several years as well. Um, and they will um, perform these duet calls to strengthen their pair bonds, like a lot of birds do, um, like a lot of seabirds do, and and some other birds of prey. And they throw their heads right back so that the bill actually. Uh, almost touches the, the 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 nape of the neck, the shoulders, um, to utter these these calls that they do in tandem in duet, which is a very harsh, grating kind of cackling call, which is where they get the name from, I think, Kara Kara. Ah, uh, yes, um, yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think it's kind of uh, onomatopoeic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, and they, I think, when they're, when they're paired up, they reinforce their bonds with with preening, arrow preening, and so on. So, um, and it's a it's a beautiful bird as well. It is. It's a beautiful bird, and it's a character. It's a bird that's got something. You yeah. know, when you see them, they watch you, and um, and also some. You know, the, the naked face. We tend. It's, it's bizarre. We don't like things that are naked. Have you noticed? But that? we are, which is strange. You know. I know. It's it's very very odd. But if you if you ask people to name ugly animals, what do you get? You get warthog, naked mole rat. You get uh, things like, uh, and if it's birds, it's marabou stalks and vultures anything that's without feathers naked i know what uh, what's our problem this is some deep-seated human yeah issue yeah i think but it's... we don't like it if it's <laughs> naked and 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 i think some people find a caracara less attractive than other other birds of prey so for anything that's a scavenger and gets reviled for that reason i think it needs it needs a bit more uh good publicity it needs yeah. to be up there as an emblem i think it's stunning it i mean it's got this beautiful orange face beautiful uh, white uh, feathers on its neck, and then it's jet black yeah. feathers on the top of its head and on the rest of its body. I, it's yeah. I, I, gorgeous, stunning. Yeah. Now on to birds that I think universally people find stunning, but I think are 
quite absurd in their own way. Uh, hummingbirds. So yeah. these are such strange creatures. Their lives are really fast and intense. Uh, they often have these beautiful jewel-like bodies. They have these l absurdly long beaks, very sharp and needle-like. And their method of flight is more like a bee than another bird. And they have these incredibly rapid metabolisms. That means a missed meal could be a death sentence. And so uh, the sword-billed hummingbird that you discuss in your book is from an evolutionary perspective, just ridiculous. It's very, it's bold and daring in a way that almost seems stupid because this is a tiny bird that, again, like every every ounce of its body weight and every, you know, moment it spends flying is potentially gambling its life because it needs to be able to get enough food uh, to keep up with this extremely rapid metabolism. So to invest so much in this ridiculously long beak seems absurd. It seems foolish. So uh, why is it worth it for them to uh, to have this ridiculously long beak? Because I'm, I'm not talking about like, you know, normally hummingbirds, they do have that long needle-like beak for sipping nectar. But this one, it is ridiculous. The, the sword-billed hummingbird's bill, it's the only bird whose bill is longer than its own body length. So this is a bird that when it, when it roosts, when it perches, it actually has to hold its head up <laughs> to tilt its bill upwards because if it held its bill out sideways, it would tilt off the perch. Ridiculous. What was it thinking? <laughs> I know, I know. But then the weird thing is, of course, you, you know, as, a, as, as an evolutionary scientist will, will tell you, there is no such thing as ridiculous, is it? Because if it didn't work, it wouldn't exist. By its very nature, it can only have evolved um, this this ludicrous, bizarre, absurd, whatever you want to call it, appendage. It can only have, uh, have evolved because through that long, drawn-out process of trial and error of, of natural selection, you know, through genetic mutation, through environmental change and so on, it has produced something that has a place and that functions and that gives it a role that removes it from the competition, that allows it to succeed. Otherwise, it wouldn't be out there like anything else. And in this case, I don't know, I think there's something like 300 species of hummingbird in the world. And each, uh, they feed on nectar and they feed by hovering in midair. And it's a, interestingly, it's, they're the only bird that can truly hover. Hummingbirds. Yes. So we, we may think of things like kestrels as hovering because they can remain stationary. But what things like what kestrels are doing are they're flying into a breeze and they're counteracting it. And hummingbirds are the only birds that can hover in a, in a vacuum because their wings. I'm sure I'm sure you know this. Uh, some amazing slowed up yes. film footage that shows you that the wings beat in a kind of figure of eight pattern, which means that they they generate thrust on the forward stroke as well as the backward backward stroke. So in a vacuum, they can stay yes. absolutely stationary, which means they position themselves in front of a flower. And with their, with their bill, they suck out its nectar. Yeah. Um, but each species of hummingbird is adapted to different flowers. Um, and the bill length or the bill shape fits the corolla of the flower. So the inside of the petals from which it derives the nectar. And in the case of the sawbill hummingbird, um, you guessed it, it, it feeds on flowers with a very long, deep corolla. So there are no other hummingbirds that can reach deep into the, I think it's a, Passiflora mixta. Uh, it's a kind of uh, a climbing vine-like flower with these very deep blooms. 
and it's found in, in my book the this bird is represents Ecuador mm -hmm. so this is a bird of the of the mid-level Andes tropical cloud forests on the edge of the Andes where this flower grows um, but it's not a one-way thing because the flower um, like with bees like with a lot of pollinators with insects the flower relies upon the hummingbird um, to uh, for pollination um, and the hummingbirds follow a regular course around a, a sort of a hillside of flowers, regularly transferring um, pollen from flower to flower as they sip the nectar. Um, so that's what they do. That's what the flower relies upon. That's what the bird relies upon. Uh, there are no other hummingbirds um, that can reach into that particular flower. So it's got its own. Um, it's got its own exclusive menu. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because it's as if the bird and this flower have this exclusive contract with each other that's developed, yeah. you know, over uh, an evolutionary time scale of, you know, the, the f nectar is costly for a flower to produce. It doesn't want to give it out to anyone unless uh, you're going to perform a service for this flower, which is enabling pollination. Yeah. And so it will often specialize for a specific pollinator because you know it knows that that pollinator is going to take its uh, pollen and then distribute it uh, in a way that benefits this flower whereas like if it allowed any kind of like maybe a little arboreal animal to to a small arboreal mammal to get in there reach in there and drink the nectar maybe that is not going to have the same kind of range the same kind of efficient pollination as this hummingbird and so by Essentially, they're co-evolving the system of they have this exclusive relationship, the hummingbird yeah. and this flower, and it's to each other's benefit as long as nothing happens to one of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I in my house, in my kitchen, there is a very high cupboard, <laughs> um, and I tend I tend to put a bag of cashew nuts right at the back of that cupboard on the top shelf, which is out of the reach of my wife and daughter. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a very similar thing, and um, except I don't think the cashew gets much out of it. Anyway, yes. <laughs> well, as someone with a very tall husband, um, I have one word for your wife and daughter, and it's tongs. Tongs, yeah, or a stool, or maybe. a stool, yes, oh, yeah. stool and the tongs, yeah, yeah, and you're yeah, undefeatable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The the, the tongue-billed hummingbird, it will happen. <laughs> exactly, <It'll> happen. yeah. <laughs> That's well, the thing I love about birds, actually, that you, if you look at. One of the most remarkable aspects of birds, I think, are their bills. Yes. And um, birds' bills evolved. Obviously, they, they, as part of the need to jettison weight in order to fly. So birds mm -hmm. don't have the heavy jawbones and of mammals. Um, they have this this horny, the keratin sheathed bill. Um, and of course, you know the disadvantage of that is they can't chew their food they don't have teeth right teeth are heavy but that's why they have the gizzard yes uh down in the digestive tract in order to or lower down to to um to crush food down there but you look at the range of birds bills and pretty much every human tool you could put out of a toolbox in a garage is represented in the bird world yes there are you know woodpeckers have chisels uh spoonbills have sieves um Crossbills have pliers. Yes. Uh, you know, eagles have meat hooks. Um, Flamingos have strainers. Have, have <laughs> strainers. Exactly. Exactly. It, it, it's incredible. The, the whole lot. It was all. It was all there. The template for most of our, uten our kitchen utensils yeah. is there in the bird world. The Flintstones wasn't too off. You could just replace all your kitchen utensils with uh, birds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just if you could somehow tame. 
this fantastic kind of aviary of birds from around the world and just have them running the kitchen. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah no, that'd be good. <laughs> Well, we are going to take a quick break while we try to train a flock of birds to run our kitchens. And when we return, we are going to talk more about the interactions between birds and humans. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So I have a personal relationship with one of the birds that you describe in your book, uh, the common swifts, because right now in northern Italy, they are everywhere. They are zooming through the sky and screaming. They, I mean, it doesn't bother me. I think it's um, perhaps if they moved right next to my podcasting window and started screaming, that might get a little bit troublesome. But they love it here. All these buildings have these, we have so many old buildings here that there are all of these little nooks and crannies that they can squeeze into and nest in. And they are seasonal. Um, and they, uh, but yeah, they, they just fill the sky with piercingly loud calls. Uh, what, are, what, are they, what are they trying to say with all of that screaming? <laughs> Yeah, that's a tricky one. Well, yours, of course, will be screaming in Italian, so it would be harder for me to to work that one out. 
I mean, they are, like all birds, they are, they're territorial. So this time of year, it's the breeding season. They've just arrived from, from Africa. Uh, they're the latest of the um, Afro-European migrants, the Afro-Paleoctic migrants, we say, to arrive. And they stay the shortest time. So they arrive in May and they're gone by the end of July, early August. Um, so they are setting up territories and they're breeding. They are screaming as they come in towards their breeding to their, their particular nest. I think the, the loudest noise, the most screaming you'll hear, though, is at the end of the season when you get the, the fledglings, which form oh, these, boy. what they call screaming parties. Um, and <laughs> really? So That's what they the, call the them? Yeah, screaming parties. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, of course. We're, I'm sure there's a human equivalent. <laughs> And then that's when they, they basically left, they've just fledged, they've left the nest and you have these young birds. The, the, the first thing on their agenda is, is migrate to Africa. You know? Yes. And the parents have gone. And so they will circle around above the towns where, from which they fledged in these groups, just trying out their wings and screaming. Wonderful. Um, it's an extraordinary sound. I, for me, it is the sound of summer in Europe. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love it. Uh, and it's a sound, sadly, that's becoming less frequent. We, where I live here in Brighton on the south coast of England, and we have them here. Um, but like in many towns, there is a, a swift survey work going on because numbers are declining. Mm. So people are trying to monitor how many swifts there are, how many uh, are returning and so on. Um, they are the most extraordinary birds of all for me. Um, and they're an example, I think, of how easy it is to overlook the extraordinary because... They're not spectacular in their plumage. Um, they just they, they don't have a very varied voice. Just this scream. <laughs> I think it's that they, the old the old English name for them was devil bird. I see. Uh, yeah. in the Middle Ages, and I think that scream was has something right. to do with that. <laughs> but they are they are the ultimate bird. They are completely aerial. Yeah. There is nothing that can compete with a swift in terms of mastery of the sky. They look like a military drone. They look like they were designed yeah. by NASA. Yeah, well, I think it's probably the other. I, I would have thought NASA is more likely to have learned from them. <laughs> That's than probably true, so, yes. Uh, they, I mean, they, they are incredible. They, um, they are so aerial. If it wasn't for the fact that eggs can't float in the right. air, Swiss would, ne <laughs> would, would never land. Yeah. You know, the tiresome kind of demands of gravity mean that they have to find a place to lay their eggs and fledge their young rear their young but then they're off yeah and they they, they drink on the wing they they will they drink on yeah. the wing they mate on the wing they feed Amazing. on the wing they can <laughs> collect nest material on the wing uh they sleep on the wing they go up to great heights and they kind of go into an autopilot yes. circling they it is now known that for me this is as incredible a fact as any i've heard from the bird world so individual swifts may go for they now think two years without landing that's incredible once, at all that's incredible not one uh, not touching down and we kind of think well that how, how can that be possible they've got to take a rest they, but they don't i mean we, it, it, they no more need to touch down it's like saying why doesn't a fish come out of the sea and take right. a rest on the beach you know, <laughs> they, 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 the land is not the medium for swift their feet have atrophied in evolutionary terms so much they can't they can't walk they only have little tiny little claws with which they can cling to vertical surfaces they, um, they can't, if one lands, you know, one has an accident, crash lands, they can't take off. Oh. You have to launch them. And <laughs> um, so they, and here, just as a side issue, evolution, do you know Swift's closest relatives? No, I don't. What are they? Hummingbirds. Amazing. That makes a lot of so sense. So Swift, 
Swifts and hummingbirds are descended, have died. So this is not convergent evolution, it's divergent evolution. They've come from the same taxonomic group. They're both, they've, they form the, the apodiformers, which means without feet, apod. Mm -hmm. And t hummingbirds also have tiny feet. Yes. And swifts do. And the structure of a hummingbird's wing is actually quite similar. A very long hand, a similar shoulder joint, but hummingbirds have turned that into a hovering mechanism for remain stationary in midair and, and feeding on nectar. Swifts use it to, to hurtle around at breakneck speed. And what they're doing up there is they feed on tiny invertebrates. Um, well, you could say insects, but actually uh, they we now know from looking at um, their food that a lot of it's spiders. Oh, really? So in summer... In summer, spiders disperse by baby spiders. Go yeah. up, they put up a little silken thread and off they They're go and the winds take them off yes. into the atmosphere. Exactly. And the, the sky is full of them. And what swifts are feeding on is aerial plankton. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a blue whale sieving the surface waters with its ballying plates for, for plankton. A swift is doing it in the sky. And they... All of Charlotte's children. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Brutal, isn't it? But they, <laughs> they, what they do is they make a, uh, a food ball in their in their crop or in their throat so they they'll gather up to the scientists have broken down these these food balls and they'll find up to 100 individual invertebrates so the swift will shoot around gathering them and form a ball and it will take that back to feed to its young at the nest that's amazing and and they they are so dependent on what's happening in the atmosphere they can they can read the wind currents the air currents like like fish in the open ocean read the ocean currents. They know where food is converging. Um, I mean, it's quite interesting that study done on swifts on the south coast of England uh, recently revealed that many of those nesting here in Brighton, they would go and feed. They collect food in northern France. Wow. So because there's no food around here, the air they follow storm fronts. So they'll see where the storm fronts are blowing the, the aerial plankton. And so off they go, nip across the channel, feed around northern France, come back with a food ball, give it to their young at the nest. That's insane. No worries that's about incredible. Brexit or anything like that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so they, they are just astonishing. When the youngster leaves the nest and fledges, they fly to Africa and nobody quite knows where they go because they can't be ringed. Right. They can now be followed with tiny satellite transmitters, but they've never been ringed because they don't come down in the same way. And so they zoom around the centre of the continent. They may go as far as South Africa, but a lot of them are over the Congo Basin. And they're following storm fronts. They're basically going where the, where the air carries the insects. Um, and because swifts don't breathe until they, after two years of maturity, they won't return on their first migration back to Europe until after their second year. So they may well not land at all, not once. Uh, not even to scratch their nose in, in two whole years. That makes me tired is, just I, thinking of it. <laughs> I know. But for them, yeah, but for them, it's not, you know, they, we think of needing to sleep as you lie down on a bed uh, or you sit down. Yeah. But birds have this spectacular uh, adaptation where they can sleep on the wing. They can shut, yeah. they can shut down sort of one hemisphere of their brain, one, right. one field of vision. And they will often readjust in terms of um, birds that fly in flocks, they'll readjust their position. So the eye that is uh, attached to the awake part of the brain is facing out. It boggles our minds, I think, because we have a particular idea of what rest is and what it would take to feel rested but there is no, as long as the um, laws of physics are being obeyed in terms of energy conversion, it's fine. Yeah. 
So, yeah. so a, yeah, a bird can, you know, keep going as long as it's getting adequate energy in. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily need the same kind of sleep and rest that a human needs. And swifts are supremely well adapted to an aerial life, the shape of their body, the aerodynamic uh, torpedo shape of their body, the long wings, um, everything about them is, is the maximum aerial efficiency. So you, so, uh, you mentioned they yeah. were struggling a little bit, though, uh, in, in Brighton. And, uh, you know, what what is they seem so amazingly uh, well adept for their lifestyle. What is threatening them? It's interesting. Um, they're a bird that is very closely tied with humans, with our um, development and our settlement over the centuries. And Swifts probably benefited from the development of towns and cities over over hundreds, thousands of years. And they've they've nested alongside people in in towers and castles and churches for for eons. Um, before that, they were almost certainly cliff nesters. They'd nest on ledges of other vertical surfaces, quarries, sea cliffs, and so on. Um, but now, I mean, you're lucky where you live. You say you've got lots of wonderful old buildings, which is fantastic. Um, not just to look at, but that kind of architecture is, is full of niches and crevices because that's what Swifts need. They need a, a a little slot into which they can slide yes. and they rear their young inside there, normally two chicks, and then out they come. Um, modern housing developments, modern architecture, modern planning regulations are de- in this country, in Britain, um, uh, are depriving Swifts of those cavities. Um, so that's one thing. They're just not finding the less spaces that they need. Uh, another thing, of course, is that there are fewer insects around. You know, we are dousing our countryside with chemicals and pesticides and, and damaging habitats and so on. So swifts, like so many other birds, are not finding the kind of food supplies they once relied upon. Um, it's always almost certainly the case. But there are, there's kind of conservationists are on the case in Britain. People, swifts have a presence and people feel their absence, you know, and, they, and uh, there are a lot of groups now dedicated to trying to protect swifts. And there are things that can be done. You, you can now buy swift bricks. So with when, when houses are being designed, modern housing is being built, you can incorporate into the structure up near the, the eave, the roof, um, a swift brick, which is like a kind of breeze block with a hole in it, um, which is not going to leak into your house, but it gives a little space little for the niche, swift to find yeah. a nest. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, the, it, they are declining, um, but we're on the case. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I think it is so important to... When we discover something like, oh, our our building design is harming an animal or harming a bird, you know, to not despair, but think, okay, we can figure this out. We have been able to coexist with swifts. In fact, swifts have somewhat benefited from the a variety of different architectures. So we can figure out a way to bring back that positive relationship. And I think that in general as well, I think in terms of building design, uh, there is a lot to think about in terms of birds. I, I know I've read a few papers on how to design windows in buildings so it's not a death trap for birds. There's yeah, yeah. there's a lot of just unconscious things that we do. Like if you have a big building with these big reflective windows, it's going to become a bird killer because birds, you know, yeah. they, they don't see a building like that and think, oh, a building. They will often 
use sort of different types of visual cues to figure out how to move through space because a bird can very skillfully move through the branches of a tree as they're flying but if they see a big uh, reflective surface a big they're not it's not going to compute as this is a solid object and so if we we have to be able to basically first understand things from the bird's perspective, understand how their vision and object avoidance works, and then work from that to design buildings that are not not a not a hazard, not so that they can actually see it, make these things that were invisible to them visible so they don't hit and hit it. And so I think that it's wonderful too with the designing buildings that have little areas for swifts to have their homes. I mean, who doesn't want to help foster some birds in your own backyard? Well, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's important, especially since there are now more and more ways that planets seem to be devising to exclude birds. Yes. You know, there was, um, there was a, a great scandal in this country a couple of years ago when the practice of covering hedgerows in um, plastic sheeting mm. in spring arose because it would prevent birds from nesting. If, there's, if there are nesting birds in a hedgerow, you can't cut it down for development. You know, there's a protection order on it but if you if you wrap it in plastic so that no birds can nest there <laughs> but that's you know, essentially uh they miss a chance uh, it, yeah. it, it's it's horrific but th those are the sort of practices right. that we're dealing with all the time um so yeah let's design let's design homes for birds too yeah absolutely so before we go uh we need to play a game called guess who's squawking it's the mystery animal sound game Every week I play a mystery animal sound and you, the listener, guess who is squawking. Now, I say squawking, but it doesn't have to be a bird. It can be any animal in the world. Uh, and so last week, the hint I gave was, is this an okay echo or maybe a blank blank? I love I love this call. It's it, I I just love this sort of it almost seeming to run out of enthusiasm towards the end and going, eh. <laughs> so Mike, do you have any guesses as to what this is? You know what? Can I claim diplomatic immunity or something? Here? Of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do not know what that bird is. I was hoping it would be uh, Well, it's something. not it's not necessarily uh, a bird. So this is this is where I'm No. It's not necessarily okay, a bird. I'm going, okay, well, do you want me to tell you what I do you want me to to narrow it down? My thinking which may be completely inaccurate is A it is a bird. Mm -hmm. B it's nothing. It, it it's tropical. It's not uh, we hear those insects in the background. If it was African, I think I would know it. And it's not European. So I think it's some kind of bird from South America or Asia. It's a large bird. This is, I'm, I'm, I've ruled it down to about 5,000. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to, I can't, I can't get any further than that. I mean, I, um, the thing is, you are correct in the terms of the location. It is in a tropical area. It is found okay. in Asia. Mm. You aren't quite right on the type of animal that it is. So it is it's not, not a bird. It is not, not a, a bird. bird. 
It sounds. Oh, wow. It sounds very bird-like, though. This is a horrible <laughs> trap I've set. So congratulations to Joey P, Sarah NC, and Saga E, who guessed correctly. It is a toke gecko. Oh, okay. Okay. It's it's a quite a deep. I know I've heard them. Yes. It's quite a deep one. Yes. It's a big, deep toke gecko. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. And I, I had something bigger further away, but it was something smaller up close. Yes, exactly. So yeah, yeah, a, little, yeah. a little bit yeah. tricky. Yeah, these are... Their toke geckos so for, are quite large for a gecko. Uh, yeah, I've seen them. Yes, yes, they're they're beautiful. They're this kind of like yeah. bluish green with orange and brown mottled spots. Yeah. Uh, they live in the trees of the rainforests of Asia and the Pacific Islands. Um, yeah, yeah. That is the male's mating call. Actually, during the Vietnam War. U.S. soldiers called it the F.U. lizard, thinking its call sounded like the gecko was telling them to F F.U., like, er, er. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, it, yeah, it's actually become somewhat popular in the pet trade, but my mm. warning would be that it really is more of an F.U. gecko because it has a very powerful mm. bite, and it's very aggressive and very territorial so it doesn't necessarily want to be a pet it, it will bite you do you know the barking gecko from um yes southern africa yeah i'm sure you do yes and that's something wonderful like someone's shaking a box of matches yeah 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 it's wonderful i yeah. i just i love at dusk yes yeah they're they're wonderful wonderful little geckos maybe not the friendliest little little guys and and maybe somewhat deserving of that name the fu uh, gecko instead of the toke gecko um so okay. i thought for uh this week's mystery animal sound now mike you did say that you may be able to produce a mystery call potentially hmm. yeah i can do that um i don't what I'll tell you is that it's not a gecko. That's my only hint. <laughs> but everything else is still on the cards. All right. On the table. Let's okay? see if I can do this. Probably not. I I, I talk a this big is... game, but. <laughs> okay, I'll give you. This will be the sound of one of the 80 birds in my book. Okay. That whittles it down this to 80. <laughs> yeah. This is the call of one of the birds in my book. All right, uh, let's see. Which, of course, is a subtle plug for getting the book. Isn't it? To, you <laughs> right, know, you have to way. you have to read the book to find yeah. out to win yeah, the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or at least find the content page. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll, let me try this. Uh, it's been a while. It goes like this. It goes. That's good. That's really good. Okay. Can do I do it again? Yeah, do it again. Okay. Let me let me let me guess. Uh that's all you're getting because my, my voice is gone now. There's no more. <laughs> Ooh, I wanna I wanna guess. Is it hmm? Now, I, it might be cheating, and I will cut this out if I get it right, because I don't want to uh, spoil it for people, because I have, okay. I have read the book. 
Is it the... Yeah. Uh... <sighs> That's unbelievable. You get a big prize. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, okay. I... I uh... Because it's based, That's but so impressive. but listen, it's based uh, on yeah. your description in the book. So really, uh, really, it's because of you. <laughs> do you remember what the the because it's the national bird of Eswatini? Ah, I used okay. to live in in Eswatini, so I know the bird very well. Um, it's the one where Eswatini used to be called Swaziland. It's uh, everybody. Royalty is denoted by wearing the, the crimson primary feathers of this in, in your hair. And, um, and you hear the birds in, in Riverine Forest. Um, and, oh, what was I going to say? Yeah, it's also the fact I can't whistle. So it's a real, <laughs> it's a real, um, a real handicap being a, a birder who can't whistle because you're trying to demonstrate birdsong to people and you can't. So, so you, you, you compensate by developing all the kind of raucous, guttural, shouty ones. Which are the best ones. <laughs> And yeah, and the the um, it's called in in Swaziland or Eswatini. It's called Liguala Guala. Wow, that's the that's the uh, the local the the Swazi name and the Zulu name as well. Liguala Guala. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, I've, you've 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 astonished me there. I'm going to have to go and um, learn the rest of them and try and catch you out with something <laughs> next time. I'm sure I will probably fail at that, uh, but it is it is a credit to your bird call, isn't it? Because I would not have guessed it if it was not a good bird well, call. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. And where can people get uh, around the world in 80 birds? Where can they get it? They can get it from... It's published in June. Um, so it's published next month. And they can get it from any bookshop or they can get it online. Uh, it's from... The publisher is Lawrence King, um, which is part of Orion Books. But it's published by Lawrence King. I highly recommend it. It reminds me of the books that like inspired my interest in animals because it it has these um, wonderful illustrations uh, as well. It's Ryuto Miyaki. Yes. I should have uh, said that earlier. Uh, fantastic, and he's yes. he's brought he's brought the book to life, and he's also conveyed the way in which birds I think decorate our world so magnificently. Yes. In addition, the amazing descriptions of these birds, it gives you just a real, a wonderful sense of each of them, like a little, uh, a, like a snapshot of what these birds are, but it, it's so complete and also gives you the sense of their, the greater context of these birds in terms of their environment and also in terms of human culture. So it's wonderful, highly recommend it. Uh, it's a beautiful book, both uh, visually and in the writing. So, uh, yes, do check that out. And uh, you can find me online uh, at Creature Feature Pod on Instagram at Creature Feet Pod on Twitter. That's F E A T, uh, not F E E T. That is something very different. And if you uh, think you uh, know what the mystery sound that Mike uh, produced, that amazing bird call. Uh, you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com, as well as any questions you have about animals. Uh, and yeah, thank you so much for listening. And thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Features a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Where have you listened to your favorite shows? See you next Wednesday. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? 
look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.